Great. As Naomi shared earlier, we are continuing in our summer series looking at the one another statements in the New Testament. And as Don kicked off the series a few weeks ago, he did so naming really helpfully the fact that we live in a time in history where um, actually the idea of one anotherness community is contested, that um, we live in a radically individualistic society. And choosing to, to be for one another and not live into that is something which is distinctive about us as God's people. And actually it calls us towards our, cre- our creation. We were created in the image of God, which means we were created for community. But that doesn't mean that it's easy, or even that it comes naturally to us at times, does it? It can be hard work, and even in the last two weeks we've seen some of that as we reflect on what it means to love one another, that that is actually quite a costly thing. It's a sacrificial kind of love that Jesus models to us. And the same way last week when you heard about being patient with one another, patience is a great thing to talk about, but a hard thing to put into practice. Even within the course of the afternoon after hearing the sermon, I had to put patience into practice in lots of different environments. So today, we are looking at compassion, being compassionate with one another. And we find the verse calling us to a life of compassion in Ephesians 4, verse 32. So I'm just going to read this verse out to us. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's just that one verse. Let me read it again. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So that's our verse for today. And I'm going to dip into lots of other places through the New Testament over the course of the morning. But this verse does kind of provide us with everything we need, which is often the case with things that are quite challenging to live out, isn't it? It's quite simple to say, quite challenging to work out the implications of it. And there's no different with this. But a good starting point is to ask the question, what is compassion? What is compassion? To look behind this huge music stand of people in this corner here. What is compassion? Here's a dictionary definition of compassion. Compassion is sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. And in fact, when you look at the origins of the word, compassion is, the word com means with, and passion is a word that we're familiar with if we're around church for a while, is our suffering. It's reflective of the work of Jesus in the, on the cross. So compassion means to suffer with others. Or to say it differently, to show compassion is to recognize the humanity and struggles of another person and to choose to enter in the midst of that with them, into the midst of their suffering and challenges and journey with them. And so Paul here is calling the church, he's calling us to live that kind of life, to be a community which gets involved in the stuff of each other's lives, the challenges and mess of one another's lives. So if that's what compassion looks like, then my question for us today is, how do we sustain a life of compassion towards others? How do we sustain a life of compassion towards others? And I wanted to to suggest three fundamental ideas that I think are crucial for us to sustain compassion towards another, as we see through Scripture. Three statements, which I want to explore through the New Testament as it relates to compassion. And these statements are, we are all human, we are all shaped by power, and we all need Jesus. We are all human, we are all shaped by power, we all need Jesus. Which are quite big statements for a Sunday morning, aren't they? But let me unpack some of these a bit more. We are all human. 
What does that even mean, you might be asking? There are whole fields of academia around anthropology and study of what humanity is about. I'm going to answer all of those questions for you this morning. <laughs> I'm, just I'm just kidding, I'm not going to do that. But I do have two books in mind when I'm suggesting this to us this morning. The first book is Everybody Poos by Taro Gomi. You weren't expecting that, that one is the first degree. It's meant for toddlers, but you can't argue with the logic of it. It's a common factor of all humanity, isn't it? But more seriously, uh, there's another book by a guy called David Zal called Low Anthropology, which uh, I found really helpful on this topic. He is a pastor and theologian who thinks that some of how we operate as church in the West particularly has meant that we've lost some of our ability to be gracious and compassionate with one another. Precisely for this reason, we've forgotten what it means to be human. Somewhere along the, the way, we've, we've embraced a kind of understanding of humanity, which is just one, one small part of it. And it finds its origins a bit more in kind of enlightenment thinking than it does in scripture. And it's more about being defined by reaching our potential, about being self-actualized, about becoming who we believe that we can be. That'd be kind of like the marker, primary marker of what it means to be human. Does that sound familiar? We see that kind of thinking all around us, don't we? And for a little while, that can be quite an exciting concept to be like, oh, there's nothing that I can't do. There's no potential that I can't reach. But after some time, it becomes pretty exhausting. There's a measurable pressure in us to perform. We're constantly asking the question, have I made it yet? Have I reached that potential that I've placed myself? Have I actualized? Is this, is this it? And if you feel that pressure, then the danger is you can begin to feel like you need to only present the best of yourself to others to show, you know, we're keeping pace. We're getting there, onwards and upwards. We're doing that stuff. We're getting everything right. And you know, if, if any of you in the room are high achievers, then the danger is that actually we can, we can get by with that for quite a while. You can end up re reaching a lot of the targets you set for yourself. And it's, it just takes a change in circumstances or capacity to remind us that it's not really truly what it means to be fully human. In the last few years, I've been confronted with that, with having small children. There's nothing like small children to mess with your emotions and your, 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 your sleep patterns to tell you that you're not, you don't have the kind of capacity that you think that you have. You're not limitless. <laughs> David Zales, this same author, he summarizes it well when he says, if you think your only hope for happiness or betterment lies within you, then you'll give up when your limitations are revealed or when your capacities expire with age. So what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Thankfully, scripture provides us with, I think, a much better way. And the, the essence of it is we're complicated. <laughs> we're complicated creatures. But David Zal summarizes three pillars, three ways of helping us to get a more holistic picture of what it means to be human. And these three pillars, we suggest, are limitation, doubleness, and self-centeredness. It's really uplifting this morning, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> limitation, doubleness, and self-centeredness. So in amongst us being image bearers, in amongst us being named as originally good by God, being creative and full of potential, we are also fundamentally limited. And if we need to be reminded of that, we don't need to look any further than the first two pages of the Bible. Right? Genesis sets out who humanity are. And first off, we were created, not creator. Secondly, we were created to depend on our creator. And thirdly, everything went wrong when we tried to overstep those good limitations and take control ourselves. So right at the outset, 
our creation, it names a limitation, a good limitation around us. The second thing is doubleness, which is the recognition that actually no one is ever entirely pure in their motivations. Um, and actually to try to be that singular about everything that we do is, is impossible and pretty exhausting. It is a constant wrestle. And I think it's no more clearly expressed than when we look at Romans 7 verse 15 where Paul says, I do not understand what I do. I do not understand what I do. That's kind of next level self-awareness, isn't it? We, and finally, we are all self-centered. That, that doesn't mean that we aren't capable of incredible acts of selflessness, but it means that our default is towards and our wiring is towards what's most comfortable for me. So you might be asking, what has this got to do with compassion? Like, why are, why are you talking about this? Why are you disheartening us with all the things that we're not very good at? Well, I think if all of us in the room here this morning were just to acknowledge that, to admit again in this moment, this is true of us. We're not perfect. No one in this room is. No one is transcended beyond the ordinary parts of being human. And then, first off, we can kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, no one here is perfect. (laughs) And alongside that, actually remembering that the whole reason that all of us are here is because we realize that we need Jesus. That never changes. It's only when we put him first and depend on him that everything else falls into place. And I wonder, one of the things that we do in the rhythm of our Sundays, which is a really helpful way of us engaging with that and reminding ourselves of that, is prayer ministry. Because all of us, if we've just named it or recognized it, maybe you've named it in yourself there. Yeah, I'm not perfect. All of us are messy. All of us have places in our lives that are unfinished where we need to invite Jesus to come and shape us and fill us afresh. And in fact, if you've never gone for prayer ministry before, this is a great week to start because we've all just acknowledged that there's stuff that God needs to work in, right? So there's no excuse. You can go for prayer ministry at the end. It'd be great. It is a gift to receive prayer from someone and to invite Jesus to continue to do that work in us. And even more so if you here this morning find yourself in a position of leadership. It can be easy to think that because you're a leader, you need to not show sign of weakness or mess or that you've got everything together. But I actually argue the opposite is true. That as a Jesus-centered leader, we need to be willing to regularly admit that we need him. And I say that to myself as much as I'm saying that to anyone else. As a bit of a caveat, uh, having said all of that, there's, that doesn't mean that we then just kind of sit back and, and not tackle the stuff that's wrong. As Naomi read at the start of this gathering in Hebrews 12, we have a calling to pursue Jesus, to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. And when we invite Jesus to to be at work in us, we expect that he will form us to look more like him. But this morning, I just want to remind us that that pursuit in that work of God is a whole life journey. And none of us will be perfect on earth. The only person that was ever perfect was Jesus. And so when we recognize that that is our shared experience, this is who we are, then I think we're able to have compassion for others, to suffer with others as we see their struggles and temptations and life circumstances, much as we receive compassion from others for us in our own lives too. Forgiving others when they let us down or hurt us, just as Jesus forgives us. When we embrace that that is who we are, that's what it means to be human, dependent on Jesus, we're able to have more compassion for others and amongst their stuff too. And in fact, I think 
if we, if we claim that, if we really dig into that as church family, it will enable us to better fulfill our vision of loving Edinburgh, being family and following Jesus. Because that kind of vulnerability with one another, another, that openness to share the whole of our lives together, that's what builds deep and lasting community amongst us. That's what it means to really be family. And that, and that recognition in us also is what draws us outwards because when we see people around us who don't know Jesus and see the mess in their lives, we also can relate to it ourselves. And we know, because we've discovered who Jesus is, that Jesus is the most loving person that we could introduce them to. It's the most loving thing that we could do is introduce them to Jesus. And lastly, as we live lives of compassion, it reminds us again and again that following Jesus is everything to us. We never get beyond depending on him. But it's like much, we sing this song quite often on Sundays. Every hour we need him, our one defense in righteousness. So I wonder that sustaining a life of compassion begins when we recognize that we are all human, dependent on Jesus. Secondly, sustaining a life of compassion rec- requires us to recognize that we are all shaped by power. That not, might not feel the logical next step, but I want you to stay with me when I'm suggesting that. Because I wonder if you feel like you struggle to show compassion to others, that one of the places to look is how you relate to power. There have been a number of neurological studies recently which have been quite interesting and revealing, which looks at the way that power shapes our brains. They studied people who were in positions of significant leadership and carried lots of power, and then compared them with people who didn't have those places of leadership and power. And across the board, those with more power, whether that in social circumstances or in business environments, they had a much reduced empathy response when they saw others in need. The way that power, one thing that power does is it rewires our brains. There's something about power which dampens our ability to reflect, relate to those who are struggling, and which um, reduces our motivation to journey with them in their suffering. My observation is maybe part of the reason for that is when we carry those kinds of positions for long periods of time, we often have to make kind of big strategic decisions which might have a negative impact on an individual. And if you're doing that regularly and often enough, eventually you need to stop thinking about those kinds of impacts in order to be most efficient and strategic. And you know, compassion isn't particularly efficient or strategic. But as I'm saying this, your immediate thought might be to think about those people who carry specific, like, like large places of power and, and leadership around us. But before we get into thinking about others, I think it's important for us to reflect it in ourselves. All of us are tempted by that kind of power. And I want to point this towards one example in scripture, which I heard someone share recently and I found really helpful. And it's in Luke chapter 18 from verse 15. So let me just read it out. One day... Some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. So what's going on here? We have 12 disciples, most of whom are under 20. They, uh, actually, Peter might be the only one who's a little bit older than that. But, and what is a shared experience amongst all of them is pretty much none of them came from history, a history of power or influence 
you had a few tradesmen, you had one or two who were right at the bottom of the social ladder as tax collectors who were despised and rejected by the community. And yet within one year of following Jesus, something had shifted and they had set up a kind of new hierarchy, a structural hierarchy, where they were trying to keep the people away from Jesus that, might, uh, they, that they believed didn't deserve to be near him. They began to set themselves up as powerful, the ones who get to decide who comes close. And just in this, and it's probably in this moment as well, there's likely a kind of desire to keep order because, you know, kids are a bit chaotic and it's not very efficient to have children nearby. Children were also of lower social economic standing in that time. So you can see why it would be a logical thing for disciples to do that near a rabbi. But as soon as the disciples try to set this up, this kind of dynamic, Jesus cuts straight through it and flips it on its head. And Jesus invites the children to come in close. He ministers to them. And while he's doing that, he says to the disciples, listen up, guys, my kingdom belongs to these children more than it does to you. So I'm not suggesting this morning we should therefore neglect our places of leadership or authority or not step into those kinds of places, but it might be a good measure of the kind of power that's forming us when we consider in the places we carry authority, maybe in work, maybe even in church environments, and reflect on how much we feel able to respond compassionately to others. Maybe even in particular to people who don't carry those kinds of roles or leadership or authority at our level, how do we respond to those and I guess I just would want to name, let's, let's not assume that every opportunity for promotion or for increased responsibility or power is always a good thing for our souls. We sustain a life of compassion when we remain discerning of power's influence over us. And then lastly, and hopefully you can see I've been moving in this direction the whole time, we sustain a life of compassion when we recognize that we all need Jesus. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see someone whose life, ministry, death, and resurrection is marked by compassion. And so to sustain compassion towards one another, we need to follow his ways to trust in who he is and all that he has done. And I just want to look at that for a moment through three angles. First, as we're reflecting the fact that we are all human, Jesus is compassionate to all people who are suffering. And if you have time this week, I'd encourage you to look through the Gospels at places where Jesus is moved by compassion, because there are many occasions through the Gospel where he is. He's moved by compassion when large crowds follow him without really understanding who he is, but in hopes of finding out. He's moved by compassion when he sees lepers keeping distance from their community and family. He's moved by compassion when he meets a stranger, a widow who's just lost her son, and he stops beside her and comforts her before then raising her son to life again. He is moved by compassion when he meets two sisters grieving over the loss of their, of their brother. And he lets them grieve. He even lets them blame him for his death. He weeps with them, but then raises their brother back to life. Even in examples when Jesus can and will completely and immediately heal and restore someone in their suffering, it is compassion that moves him. He suffers with the person. And we see that more clearly than when we look at how Isaiah describes Jesus as the suffering servant. It's a core part of who he was that he suffered with and suffered for us. And it didn't matter whether that person that he encountered in his ministry was a stranger or a friend, a crowd with mixed motivations, or a devoted follower. That is who Jesus is. 
And he does this perfectly. So Jesus is, shows compassion to all people who are suffering. The second thing is Jesus resists any earthly power that disrupts his ministry towards people, which gets in the way of what he's called to. Because you see that right at the start of his ministry. If you might remember having read Matthew's in, in Luke's Gospels, that right at the start of Jesus' ministry, he's tempted in the wilderness. And there are three places of temptation by Satan in the wilderness. And all of them are to do with earthly power. He says to him, you know, just, you're feeling weak right now. Just change this stone into bread. That's like, you just exert your authority over creation like that. He says, or why don't you jump down from this temple? Because if you do that and people see that you don't get hurt, then they will know you're worthy of worship. Or if you just concede to me, I will make you king of all kingdoms. I'll give you all power and leadership and authority. And Jesus rejects that power all three times. But not just then, actually, he continues to reject that kind of power throughout his ministry in life. When his fame increases in a town for the wrong reasons is often the point at which he leaves. When the crowds expect him to do something or when even his disciples try to get him to keep to a plan, he often frustrates it by stopping for the one person in front of him, doesn't he? Compassion moves him over and over again and earthly power has no foothold in his life. I wonder how much is that our story? I'd love it to be my story, but I know many times that I am drawn towards the allure of recognition, of authority, of significant responsibility. Jesus shows compassion to all who are suffering. Jesus resists any earthly power that disrupts his ability to be compassionate. And finally, as I come into land, Jesus is the only one who can sustain compassion in us. Since the pandemic, there have been a number of studies, um, particularly around healthcare, looking at the impact of the pandemic on healthcare work. And it, they've even coined the phrase compassion fatigue, which some of you might be familiar with now. But a definition given by a government study suggested this about compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue was first introduced to characterize a state of reduced capacity for compassion as a consequence of exhaustion caused by contact with the suffering of others. Witnessing the suffering of patients without being able to alleviate their discomfort has a high emotional toll on healthcare personnel. And that might well be some of our story in the last few years, whether in healthcare or in other environments burnt out from trying to sustain compassion towards others in incredibly challenging circumstances. The reality is we simply can't bear that kind of weight on our own. To suffer with others without there being any hope of alleviation from that suffering is exhausting and inevitably leads to burnout and a reduced capacity for compassion to others. And I'm not going to try to offer any empty platitudes if that is your experience this morning, but I do want to point you to Jesus because we have a lasting hope in him. A promise that is yes in Jesus. One day all suffering will end and we will know healing and restoration. And in the meantime, he invites us to know his strength and presence by Holy Spirit to sustain us as we show compassion towards others. To reassure us that in those moments where we don't know what's going on, that he will still promise us to and therefore he will complete the work that he started one day suffering will be no more. But until that time, this is what we're called to as people of God, as community, as one another, 
we're called to show compassion to one another and also to give a glimpse to the world of what Jesus-centered compassion looks like in the way we relate to one another. To meet people in our humanity, in our mess, to have patience and endure and suffer with others. To fight to sustain compassion in our lives when power would lure us away from that kind of life. And to introduce people to Jesus who shows what perfect compassion really looks like. I'd love to pray for us to close. Why don't you stand with me if you're able and I can pray. And I want, I want to pray particularly for those for whom, um, as I was describing compassion fatigue, it, that, that would feel true of your experience, that, that you feel worn out, um, exhausted from journeying with others. Um, and if that's you, you might want to put your hands out in front of you and invite Jesus to work and refresh us. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you again for the wonderful invitation that you offer us to come to you, all of us who are heavy laden and burdened. I know that we will know rest, to walk with you, keep step with you, to learn your rhythm of grace and know your refreshing of our lives and our souls. For any of us that feel worn out, uh, this morning, God, would you begin that refreshing work in us? Would we know that call and invitation to us again? And for those of us who know that we, um, we can relate to the way that we've reduced ability to have compassion for others, would you restore our vision for what it means to be followers of you? Would you help us to always see people in front of us not to depersonalize, not to see them as less than. Give us a bigger and open heart towards others. And particularly for those of, as, as, as church family, give us a deeper and wider heart for, our, for one another. That we might seek to enter into the whole of one another's, one another's lives. Help us to be a people that feel able to be vulnerable and not just present the best of ourselves when we gather and when we're in community together. And we know that the only way that we can sustain that is if we're sustained by you, Jesus. You model perfect compassion in our failing attempts. Would we always and only look to you? I say in Jesus' name, amen.